Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. And we're going down Broad Street. And all of a sudden, it wasn't once, it wasn't twice, it was a lot. People your age, young guys, are looking up at me and they're going, hey, yo, wheels. And they start with their hands. And you know what? That was the moment I knew it was okay. From 94 WIP, it's Wired This Way, a show about the top sports personalities in Philadelphia, their lives, their stories, and their success. I'm Andrew Porter. He was born in Delaware County, but grew up in Newtown Square. Chris Wheeler was just a normal Philadelphia kid who loved baseball. He played at Marple Newtown High School and then studied journalism at Penn State for four years. His life up until that time was incredibly normal. But then he got a break of a lifetime, and Wheels was offered the opportunity to work for his favorite company, the Philadelphia Phillies. Wheels became a Phillies broadcaster, calling games for 38 years, not just meeting his childhood heroes, but working and becoming close friends with many of them. Like anyone else, Wheels has been through his ups and downs, but he does not take for granted the way he made a living for nearly four decades. Very small family. My mom and dad and my brother, we were 13 months apart. I was 13 months older. Uh, Fred, um, baseball. <laughs> Gosh, I always played it. I always It was always my favorite sport. I was lucky enough to play at every level, you know, Little League, Babe Ruth League, uh, uh, American Legion. Um, I pitched and played shortstops. I couldn't have been a, too bad. Uh, you know, I was able to do that and then became totally overmatched as I got older. Played in high school, too, a little bit at Marple Newtown. Uh, but I always loved the game, and I went to Connie Mack Stadium. I mean, you grew up, uh, you, your generation grew up a little bit with the vet and, of course, Citizens Bank Park. But my generation grew up with Connie Mack Stadium. And we lived for rainouts in April and May so that there would be doubleheaders, so we could go to doubleheaders. Uh, but the game always... Always was my favorite sport. Now, when I was a kid, we played everything. It wasn't like nowadays where they have these travel teams and we played baseball and then we'd play football and then we played basketball. We didn't have hockey or lacrosse or that sort of stuff. So we played those three sports. They were all in, they were seasons for them. Uh, you played them in the proper temperatures, I guess. Um, but baseball is always my favorite and the one I was the best at. How did you learn the game? Was it from your grandfather, your father, or was it just on your own? You know, learn the game and, and, and play the game are totally different, Andrew. I think, um, I learned how to play the game. I, I I was decent, like I said. You know, I had some uh, had some ability that uh, I was able to play the game at a level that I could make my teams wherever I tried out for teams. So, um, and then you. you you, you learn to play through great coaching and, and through instruction like that. So, uh, you know, I had had people in my life that really helped me uh, learn how to play the game the right way. But um, 
Should we keep going? We good? Yeah. But learn the game per se. What you're saying mm-hmm. is, and I, 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 you know, I. So one of the criticisms, you know, you always get criticism when you do what I did because everybody thinks they can do it better or they know the game. But one of the first things I found out when I got into baseball and worked for the organization was how little I really knew about the game. Now, I know Phillies fans just blanch at that when you you say something like that. And I always mean that as listen to what I'm saying, because you can I always felt you could learn something every day, even to the last day I was there. And that was 47 years in. But when I first started, I really realized how little I knew about the game itself and the strategies involved and what the player thinks is a major league player. I was only 25, 26 when I started. I was very lucky in that I became friends with Greg Luzinski, um, Larry Boa, John Vukovic, uh, later on, not Tim McCarver. And we would go out after games and sit and talk the game. Uh, we were in bars most of the time. That's what you did back then. You sat and you, you went to bars and you drank and, and, you, and you, you talked baseball. And that's how I learned the game because I would pick their brain. You know, Pete Rose came along later, guys like that. But when I, what I really, when I really learned the game, was talking to people who played the game, and they would share it with you. Um, they took to me, as I said, we were around the same age. A lot of us. They took to me that I had a clue. And then I, as they told me, uh, you ask a lot of questions. You didn't act like you knew everything. And I know. Some people know everything. Well, the, I was never like that. I always ask a lot of questions. Let's go back to Marple Newtown High School uh, and your your high school experience. What was that like? I mean, you said you mentioned you played baseball. Um, I imagine you were you know on the team for a little bit. You were one of the popular guys in high school. Did you enjoy your your time in high school? And what was that like? Yeah, well, back? my first two years, I went to a place called Devon Prep. I don't really talk about that too much because it didn't work out real well. Okay, but I always wanted to go what to Marple there? Newtown. I just <laughs> it was. It was different. Okay. Uh, I think it's different there now. I don't want to say anything. Uh, uh, I don't know. Right. But back when it first started, it was um, a bunch of priests from uh, Europe who had just escaped uh, uh, from behind the Iron Curtain. And wow, were they tough. I mean, they were such strict disciplinarians. And look, you're 14 years old. You're f- they didn't have sports there yet. Uh, they, you know, That's a great place now from everything I hear about it. But they didn't. And I wanted to play baseball in the worst way my dad wanted me to get this world-class education which i look back on it now and i totally understand and he was trying to pay all this money for me to go to this place and i want to be there so i finally you close with your very close i lost him when i was 19 so we can talk about that a little bit that's one of the great main regrets i have in my life is that he never saw what i did um his name's chris so, uh, well, there you go. And, and and I lost him when I was up at school at Penn State. He died of a heart attack uh, when I was only 19. But he was nice enough to understand that I really needed a change, and he let me go to Marple Newtown when I was a junior. So I was there my junior and senior years. And played JV my junior year under a guy named Dave Williams. And then my last year, uh, I did make the varsity. I played uh, – the guy was – the coach was a famous coach in this area named Lou Bonder. Mm-hmm. And Lou Bonder was a legend. Um, tough. 
tough guy. I didn't play a whole lot in high school. I played a lot more in American Legion and Babe Ruth League. Um, but I did play a little bit in high school, enough to get a letter and all that. Right. Enough to play against Reggie Jackson when he was at Cheltenham and he hit a home run and beat us. He was a junior when we were seniors. But my experience at Marple Newtown was was great. Um, lifelong friends that I still have. Um and getting to play, getting to play baseball in high school. I was kid at Boa. I said, "Hey, I made my high school baseball." <laughs> oh, and the expletives would start then. Yeah, well, what could? Yeah, look what you're doing. Look, what, but we still kid about that. That uh, hey, I at least did. I didn't get cut from my my high school baseball team. And then uh, Penn State for four years. Yeah, and you graduated in 1967. Journalism, bachelor's degree. Yeah, my my degree is actually in broadcasting, which is interesting because. Mm-hmm. Did you know when you went to Penn State? Like how, what was that experience like? I didn't know. I right. was. I think I started as a political science major. Right. You and, wanted the big school feel. The well, you know, Penn State wasn't that big in those days. Okay. I know you find that hard to yeah, believe yeah. now, Andrew. But Beaver Stadium seated forty two or forty three thousand, and okay. they had just moved it from um, near Rec Hall. You know, you probably yeah. picture where it is, mm-hmm. where it was back where all those buildings are now that's where beaver stadium was and they had moved it down to where it is now and it seated forty two thousand. um so my first football season was 63 well i think it opened in you have to look it up it opened in 60 or 61 so penn state it was huge the 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 ground but there were once you got out towards east halls there was nothing all the way to Beaver Stadium, there was right. nothing except you would freeze walking out there from the wind. It was like a frozen thing. There were no, all those intramural fields and all that. None of that was there. So big school, I don't know. I I had applied to Missouri, too, because I had a friend who had gone there, and I heard it was a great uh, journalism school. But there was something about the lure of staying at home and yet getting far enough away from home that I could be on my own a little bit. Did you have family that went to Penn State? Or Nobody. No. 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 So it was fact, your dad on board? My dad never went to college. My dad went to Girard College, which was okay. for uh, poor, uh, for uh, fatherless uh, men, boys in those days. It's much different now. But uh, no, he never went to college. And my mother never went to college. He was a World War II guy that came out and uh, had kids and, and went to work. And they were excited about you going to Penn State? Yeah, or? I think they were excited because I can still remember them taking me up there on my trip to look at it uh, and dropping me off that first day in September of 63 and everybody crying like, I don't know if you did that with your parents, but and then they're making the long ride back to Philadelphia because it was a long ride in those days. There was a lot of two-lane highway. There was yeah. no 322. Still pretty long. <laughs> it's, it's still long, and it, 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 you know, all through those little towns you go through, it was all two lanes. You right. still see some of the road there. Um, but it was a great decision. I, and, and in those days, you didn't have to go to a, a satellite campus. You could go to main campus right away. So it wasn't even a question. So I, I, I don't look back on it. I looked at, I thought about Temple a little bit, mm-hmm. but I really, I think I wanted to get away. I think like a lot of kids, some kids don't, some kids do. I wanted to get away, and I was lucky enough that they accepted me, and I I had four great years. They say true character is revealed through adversity, and at just 19 years old, during his sophomore year at Penn State, for the first time in his life, Chris Wheeler was staring adversity straight in the face. I worked in a fraternity as a dishwasher because I had lost my dad when I was 19. I needed some money. I needed, you know, a little help because... Is that during your first year? 
My sophomore year. Oh, okay. I was 19. It was um, February of 65, so I was pretty much through my sophomore year. Um, so I worked at Delta Chi, I think it was, out prospect out there. Anyway, and the, the thing you worked for was your meals. So I could eat as many meals, I could eat as much as I wanted. And you know how important that is when you're a kid in college. So I got two meals a day. I'd work lunch and dinner. Um, the uh, the fraternity members uh, uh, always told me I could come to parties. I never was into that. I don't know what it was, but I was never a party guy. So I never went to the parties or anything. Um, I got on the student station almost immediately. It was called WDFM. It was at the top of the Sparks building which was a liberal arts building then. I don't know what it is now. but And Carnegie had some stuff, too. But it was at the top of, of Sparks. And I became the sports director there, I guess, because nobody else wanted to do it. I don't know. It gave me some experience. I got to do some basketball. Um, I got to do a little baseball talking to an audience of nobody where we would sit out there and freeze and we'd hook up our little mixers and that sort of stuff and do it. Um, the best time I had was my senior year which was 66, 67, and Joe Paterno became head coach. His first year was 66. I got to do a weekly show with him. Wow. Thrill. I look back on it now, and uh, he was 40 years old, 41 years old, and I was 20 or whatever I was. And, uh, wow, just to think that um, that I was sitting there, and uh, we were down the old – practice fields they had out there he used to let me stand and watch practice we now it's fort knox mm-hmm. uh and i can still see him as i'm sitting there talking to him andrew with my little reel-to-reel tape recorder holding this under him the microphone under his mouth he'd be rolling up those pack those pant legs he'd be rolling up those khakis and i can still remember those black shoes and those white socks and it wasn't that big a deal back then because he was a first-year head coach. But my first impression of him was not only was he smart and gracious to me as a kid, um, boy, he really knew what he wanted to do. And he had a plan that he was going to add speed. He said, we're too slow. We have to get speed to compete nationally. Check out the numbers. Within two years, they were competing nationally. How did um, losing your dad impact you or, or you know, did it – did it change anything psychologically or, or not really? You know, I was never a, never kind of a screw-off kid anyway. I mean, I was a little bit of a class clown. I've always had a pretty good sense of humor. And, and I guess I guess without knowing it, um, I liked attention more back then than I did when I became someone who garnered attention, if that makes sense. Uh, so I think... I think you do one of two things when something like that happens to you. Uh, and I don't want to simplify it, but you either become a screw-up or you be you grow up real fast. And I think I grew up real fast. I, I, I don't want to say childhood was gone, but when you're 19 years old and you have a mother who doesn't even drive a car because she was a World War II wife, they didn't do that. They just had kids and stayed home and cooked. Uh, you've read about that. You've heard about that. You've seen the TV shows of a madman, mm-hmm. uh, that sort of stuff. Uh, and a younger brother, you, you realize all of a sudden that you, you're kind of you're kind of be in charge, and you have to do some things. So it wasn't hard for me though, because like I said, I wasn't a big frat guy. I wasn't going to parties all the time. I wasn't staying out late and, and 
drinking and doing those kind of things, even though I was underage. But, you know, you could still do it if you wanted to. So uh, I don't want to sound like a martyr or anything, but I think it was an instant. uh, It was a wake up call in that, wow, your dad's gone. Your mom needs you. Your brother needs you, and you got to get through school and make something of yourself, whatever it is. So I think I became, I use the term again, an instant adult that day, even though I was never a, a party guy or a crazy kid. And you parlayed your journalism experience at Penn State, and you started working in, in broadcasting right away, or how did those doors open for you? In terms of professional, well, I'm trying to simplify it, real. You know, although you don't care about time, um, and I gave you a copy of my book. Where, uh, you know, you can kind of look up some of it. When I was 15 years old, I was in Newtown Square working at a swim club called Langollen Hills. And um, when you're 15 back in my era, that's 1959 or 60, to say you dated somebody, (laughs) it's different than kids are nowadays. You didn't have the free. Anyway, I met a girl there. Uh, I even won't even. I mean, all I wanted to do was play baseball and watch it. But anyway, her name was Susan Harvey, and uh, it, it didn't mean anything to me. Well, it turned out her father was a guy named Ed Harvey. Now, at that time, Ed Harvey was the number one radio personality in the city of Philadelphia. And it was just starting to go into a little bit of talk radio where you he would do book. Anyway, Ed Harvey took a liking to me and told me that someday I was going to work in radio and television like he did. And I kind of laughed and all that. Uh, When I was at Penn State, I was a pretty good baseball player. He had me come down to uh, meet WCAU station manager at the time. It was a guy named Jack Downey who wound up owning a great restaurant downtown. Jack had the softball team down there, and he was fanatical about them winning. Harvey said to me, I got a, I got an idea. He said, you're going to come down. You're going to work out with the softball team. You're younger than everybody. Downey's going to say, I want that kid. Andrew, that's exactly what happened. They, uh, next thing I know, Harvey's calling me and telling me, Downey wants you to come work um, in the newsroom, and he wants you to play softball. That's how I got my foot in the door because I knew a girl whose father happened to be a big personality at a major radio station and I could play baseball and they sent the plane there was a plane called uh, traffic alert we had WCAU traffic alert we'd fly around I wound up doing those things because they didn't care if they killed me in that airplane they didn't want to put anybody important up there anyway they two times two or three times they sent the plane to Penn State to pick me up to fly me back to Philadelphia to play softball for Downey in my junior and senior years. So that's how I got my foot in the door at CBS Radio. And I parlayed that into working at Chicago and New York. And eventually um, it caught the eye of Larry Schenk with the Phillies who liked my background and hired me to work there. So for me to say I had this Horatio Alger story, I always tell kids it's, it's all about timing. Preparation, And when you get your foot in the door, do what you can with it. And I did. I maximized my abilities. Did the Phillies approach you or did you seek them out or how did that happen? I sent resumes. to. By that time, we had we had a hockey. Mm-hmm. Too. The Flyers were in town. So I sent. I was working 
um, I'd gotten laid off again. <laughs> That's what happened in radio, and it's one of those things. But I got laid off up at CBS in New York, um, and I was working for General Electric in the Space Bureau out in uh, Valley Forge, up in the big hill there when you go up near the plaza. Mm-hmm. I think Lockheed Martin's up there. Anyway, and I didn't like that. I wasn't enjoying that. I sent resumes to all four teams in town. Um, Larry Schenk, uh Larry Schenk answered was the one who got back to me. They had just moved to the vet. Seventy one. He needed an assistant. My um, references had a guy named Andy Musser on there. Uh, Larry said, uh, called Andy Musser, and he told me, he says, Andy, is that that kid that when you used to bring up to Connie Mack Stadium with you in the late 60s and sit in the games? And he says, that's not only the kid I used to bring up there. He said, that's your guy. So Larry told me later that he had he was predisposed to favoring me before he even did an interview with me because of Andy Musser. So once again, it was knowing somebody who helped you get your foot in the door, but then I had to do it myself from then on. But So that's how that happened. He hired me uh, after one interview. And that was a dream job moment oh. for you. I mean, that's a life changer, right? Andrew, I'm driving down. I was living in King of Prussia at the that's time. That's like a pursuit of happiness moment. <laughs> well, it, it, here's what I, I'll never forget. Mm-hmm. 25, going on 26 in 71, in April 71. I'm driving down to Veterans Stadium, which had just opened. I mean, it's barely a month open when I'm doing the interview and I'm saying to myself don't screw this up I don't know I don't know how you don't screw up an interview or what they're looking for but be yourself but yet somehow don't mess this up and I didn't and he hired me he told me once he talked to me that day it was over but he still had to talk to he still had another list of people he had to talk to so I got my foot in the door as assistant director of publicity and public relations and he was predisposed to looking for someone who had a broadcasting background I mean this sounds crazy to people of your generation but print media ruled the ruled the day back then the writers were the most important thing. The newspapers were the most important thing. The radio TV guys were kind of ostracized in the press box. They were put in another area. The newspaper guys got the seats right behind home plate. Obviously, that has gone 180 degrees now. But he wanted somebody with a broadcasting background because he was a newspaper guy. And he needed someone that had a feel for that sort of stuff because he didn't necessarily see the way it was going. But he knew he needed somebody that knew Tom Brookshire or somebody like that who could work with him. And, and, and Al Meltzer, who were the big guys in town at that time. And I knew them. So you end up doing 37 years yeah. of uh, broadcasting for the Phillies. And I mean, I'm sure you have a million ups oh. and downs and stories. And I, I mean, I, I try to describe that experience for you. Like, you know, you're looking back over 37 years what what would you say about that how how great was it and what was it like i was the luckiest guy in the world uh, we're sitting here talking about how i grew up in newtown square in delaware county i grew up a phillies fan i grew up listening to by and bill campbell richie ashburn richie ashburn my boyhood idol as a player i of course obviously later worked with him and become best friends um the whole, the, the whole thing when I look back on it, the 37 years when I was lucky enough to get in the booth in 77, was 
It was an honor and a privilege, and I never went in there one day and, and cheated anybody. Now, you may not like what I did, or you may have liked what I did, but I was always prepared. I never went in there with an attitude. I wish I was somewhere else because it's cold tonight. It's hot tonight. I, I'm on the road, and I'm tired. You know, we got in at 5 in the morning, and I got to sit here and do this stuff. We stink. There's a rain delay. None of that. When I hear guys on the air that complain about that stuff now, it drives me crazy because – it's you're so lucky to be in there number one and number two to stay in there isn't always the easiest thing but you need to appreciate how lucky you are to be there i think and also to to try to be the best you can be for your audience uh and try to convey your excitement for what you're doing and the feeling that you've as I said, I I really believe it's an honor and a privilege to do that. But to do it for my hometown team uh, was a dream come true. And to be part of two World Series teams, uh, two World Championship teams and five World Series teams. I mean, I got a box upstairs with five rings in it, five championship rings. How cool was that to be in two parades for first World Championship in the franchise's history, which is not a great history. But to be a part of that in 80 and then have another one in 2008, uh, ride of a lifetime. You mentioned Richie Ashburn. Um, <laughs> you worked with Harry Callis. You worked with, you mentioned Larry Boa earlier. Um, a lot of, a lot of big personalities that you've worked with and interacted with as anyone who stands out, who made the biggest impact on your life or can, can you even answer that question? I can't say anyone made the biggest, um, they all they all contributed. You know, Harry in his way of teaching you how to be a pro on the air. Whitey of just being around a true legendary character. Um, Tim McCarver wrote the foreword for my book, and he's one of my best friends in the world to this day. I learned, probably learned as much baseball from people like Tim McCarver, Larry Boa, um, John Vukovic. They're the guys that, and I don't want to slight anybody, but they taught me the game. But Timmy, to work with Timmy on the air, Timmy was one of the first guys. Timmy came along the same time as a John Madden had come along, and the play-by-play guy was always the star. And now it's the analyst in a lot of ways. And Timmy was one of the first guys that really grabbed that. He didn't do it on purpose, but especially when he went to New York, he kind of grabbed that whole thing, that whole concept that is now a reality and ran with it and became a bigger-than-life guy in New York as an analyst and not the play-by-play guy. But he taught me the game, uh, and we spent so many hours talking about baseball and and life and our experiences. He's a little older than me. He's about three years older than me. And so there, you know, the, those guys, and then the field guys. You know, you get into so many of the field guys, like a Fergosi, Jimmy Fergosi, often wrong but never in doubt. Jimmy was, boy, I learned a lot from him. And I just really, I mentioned Pete Rose earlier. I had five years with Pete Rose. It's a smart it, being around the smartest guy in your business for five years. You'd be sitting on the team bus after the game. He'd plop himself down beside you. And start talking again. And he'd go, Wheels, what you think about this? And I'm thinking, what did I think? What did you think? But he he was that way. He was that warm. He was that open. He he loved to talk the game. And, you know, he told me many years later how much he respected the way I approached the game and the pro I was in the booth. And that I understood what was going on up there and that I wanted to learn more. And 
really that's the essence of all I ever tried to do in there was try to learn more and try to impart that to fans. Some wanted to hear it. Some knew everything. And Andrew, you get to a point where it really bothered me. In the last 20 years, I really didn't care. Wheels had an up-and-down relationship with the fan base for sure, and it sort of soured toward the end of his broadcasting career in 2014. But his knowledge and love of the game was never in question, and while fans and media would poke fun at Wheels, his silent fist-pumping video alongside of Harry Callis during the final out of the 2008 World Series will never be forgotten. In fact, it's one of the most memorable moments of that entire season. In that moment, Wheels was all of us. No, I wanted to talk about your relationship with the fan base because um, I think it's interesting. And I think the criticism at the end, sort of, I, I would call it unfair, some would. And, and it's kind of come full circle now where yeah. you hear fans say, you know, we miss <laughs> wheels. Um, and it, you've become endearing to the fan yeah. base now. And it, it's just well, funny. It's nice how... I'm still alive. <laughs> you know, and that's funny you say that because everywhere I get everywhere. But I, I, yeah, first of all, most people don't. The, the, the jerks. The loudmouths, the really nasty ones, they don't do that to your face. Right. Oh, they may make a snide remark when they walk under the booth or something. But, you know, they got to get up and go to their miserable life the next day. And I always looked at it that way. Whatever you do, don't answer them. Don't say anything because they're miserable. And, and they're going to be miserable, and that's the way it goes. But I, I never – to say it didn't bother me sometimes. You know, when talk radio started is when you found out that there were people out there that didn't like you. Right. I didn't know that until then. I get an occasional letter. To say it didn't bother me, sure it bothered me because I knew the kind of person I was. I knew what I was trying to do. But I remember Harry telling me one time, he said, you know, you've got a unique ability to see things on the field that I don't see, that other people don't see. You see the field like a player. He said, you got to keep doing that. And if some people resent that because they said you didn't play in the major leagues or how do you know that, he told me don't worry about that because you see it first. It's not like somebody else saw it first. You see all those things, and you have a way of explaining it, too, like you're a field person. So I did it that way. And, you know, you had the people that say, well, he's talking down to us. Or I don't need him to explain the infield fly rule. But what they didn't understand was there's a whole new group of people watching that night that don't know the infield fly rule. And some of them didn't know the infield fly rule if you talk to them. So for me to say that that didn't hurt or didn't bother me, Sure it did, um, especially some of those jackasses on talk radio that would get on you that knew me as a person and knew what I was like, but decided that was the way for them to make their show more popular, to have, have foils. And they knew I wasn't going to answer them back because I didn't. I just ignored them. That was, the, And I think that bothered them more than anything. But now to have so many people come up to me and tell me they... Your generation, other generations, they grew up. They learned the game from me. They miss what I added to the game of the game itself and the history of the game. And I was lucky, Andrew, and I still am. I have a great memory. I don't forget much. So I could go back when someone would say something, and I could tell you, oh, yeah, well, this is what happened. Who's the pitcher? This is what happened in the game. And we didn't have a computer to look it up in. Uh, I would just remember that sort of stuff. So I, I think I was... I was gifted in a lot of ways, and I worked my tail off, and I had to overcome the fact that I didn't play professionally. 
nowadays, and you mentioned it a little bit, it's, you know, you have social media, you have, <laughs> it's not just radio, it's everything. And it's, it's kind of brutal. Um, but you're the tail end of your career. I mean, you, you finished in 2014, but that it was starting to get into the YouTube and the videos yeah. and all that stuff. And I think for me, the a signature moment for your career was the 08 world series, <laughs> yeah. Harry's call where you're in the background and fans love that. And I don't know if that helped your image or anything, but that that's an amazing moment that really lives in Philly's lore. And, and you were the fans, you embodied the fans at, at that moment. That was just completely instinctual, right? Oh yeah. That's a great observation. You know, that what happened that night, um, I'm sitting there with Harry now, in 1980, we weren't on the air. Harry had a, Harry did a record, a record. I say to you, a record. You know, people, what the hell's a record? Anyway, he did a, a true 33 and a third record recreating the World Series. Did a great job, just as Harry was great. I mean, he was tremendous. Harry, Harry always got the moment right. He was uncanny the way he could do that. Rise of the occasion. So I'm sitting there in the ninth inning of that game. And there's one out, and the Rays have a runner on second base. And I forget the kid's name. He's still at Comcast Sports. Anyway, he's over in the corner of the booth, in the radio booth. It's not that big a booth. He's in that corner. And I know he's there, and I'm thinking, and we're all so superstitious. I'm thinking, geez, he shouldn't be in here. You know, it's going to jinx us. I say to myself, whatever you do, if we win this World Series, shut up. Don't get in his way. And I wasn't much one for hooping and hollering in the background. I went, oh, once in a while. But I, I didn't. I always let the play-by-play man do his thing. And then I did my thing, and especially on radio. So we win the thing. And uh, it's all a blur after that. I, You know, from the minute it ends to high-fiving Tom McCarthy. Tom McCarthy and uh, Jim Jackson were in the back of the booth. And, you know, I high-fived them. And... So anyway, about two hours later, we're out in the tent in the World Series party, and they're showing the highlights. Well, we're all out there, you know, players, Charlie, everybody, all the front office. We're having the time of our lives. We don't have to go to the parades, not the next day like it was in the 80s. You don't have to worry about getting up the crack of dawn. I look up, and I see what you're talking about, that video of me acting like a crazy man, just doing all that stuff and and here's my first reaction and this is we go back to this talk radio nonsense my first reaction when i looked at that was oh my god what are they going to say about me on the morning show or something about what an idiot you know look at this jerk trying to bring attention to himself and it's crazy to even think that but i did so now two days later we're in the parade andrew and we're going down broad street and all of a sudden, it wasn't once, it wasn't twice, it was a lot. People your age, young guys, are looking up at me, and they're going, hey, yo, wheels, and they start with the hands. And you know what? That was the moment I knew it was okay. Yeah. What I had done was okay. It 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 came full circle to me that um, that is something that people, I didn't know it as much as I do now, but as is what you said. That was what they were doing. 
that was a human thing. Well, they don't know what he used to say. Well, you don't say that. I said, you want to hear what I say in between innings. But you can't say that stuff when you're on the air and be a jerk. We're not doing a talk show when we're on the air. We're as emotional as anybody. We want the Phillies to win, but you need to be dispassionate about it when you're doing the game. You have to give both sides of a something. That's the way I grew up. So that's the way I did a game. Um but I look back on that and I think I was in the booth for 37 years. I'm going to remember me for a full body spasm or something. And I know that's not true. But I think that what, there was a humanizing thing right there that there was a portion of fans who thought I was just kind of automated in there and just just did what I did. And because I didn't scream and yell at umpires or didn't get all crazy like some people do, did then or do now, that I didn't care. Well, they couldn't have been more wrong, and I guess that showed that. But my main thing was, don't get in Harry's way. And uh, you know, this, you know, we lost him the next year. I mean, I'm in the booth. I was downstairs when that happened that morning, and and you know, from that day on, uh, it was it was hard. It was hard to go in that booth uh, in Washington and not look down at that spot where he had been uh, that morning. Your personal life, um, you were married once, you're now, you're not married, but you've been with the same partner for a while. No kids? No kids. She's a Penn Stater, Penn like State. me, Renee. Uh, from ben, she's from Ben Salem. We've been together a long time, yeah. Um, a lot of golfing. We play a lot of golf. Um, we have a dog named Nittany, <laughs> who happened to be sitting right down here. She's 15 and a half now. Um, but we found out that she's a Shih Tzu, not a Shih Tzu, as people say. She's a Shih Tzu. Um, we found out that uh, Shih Tzu means lion dog in Chinese. Renee did. I, I, she That's became Nittany. Yeah. What else? So, uh, yeah, that helps a little bit. You know, someone went to the same university. So, yeah, we've been together a long time. Yeah, I was married one time, no kids. Uh, I guess my kid is right down here at my feet right now looking up at us as we do this do this show but i live in a, a beautiful community a blue ball country club and uh i have um i have money in a place in clearwater the place will be ready in mid-july and uh i've been going to clearwater for 46 years so it's a second home and i love florida and i, I want to spend a lot of time down there so we'll figure it out um she she doesn't want to be there as much as i do um but it'll all work out any, um, you know, do you have any scratches, itches to get back into talking baseball? Or you just kind of like, you know, you're afar watching the Phillies. You're around the team a little bit? Or? I watched the games. Well, for the four years after Comcast fired me, I uh, was a Phillies ambassador. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that meant I went down there almost every home game for four years. This, as we sit here right now, is the second month of the first year that I am not doing that. And to tell you it's not strange... It's strange. But it's okay. I watch games. I sit there and do the games. She sits there. Renee sits there. And she goes, you just can't help it, can you? And, and, you know, I say things before. I do what I did. Um, Do I still love to sit and talk the game itself? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Do I have any urge to get back in? Not one minute do I ever want to get back in, especially what it's become now. Because you mentioned all the social media stuff they want you to do. I don't want to tweet. I don't want to be on Facebook. I don't want to be uh, accessible to people that way. 
Uh, I would love to talk to people when I meet them out in the street or on the golf course or anywhere and talk the game with them. But I don't want somebody tweeting at me or me tweeting that I just had a hamburger for lunch. Who cares? Um, so, no, I don't. But do I? did I miss it that first year? Hard to explain. Did I miss it the second year? Yeah. Third and fourth year? It's okay. I have a deal with the Phillies right now to work spring training. Um, work. Go to dinner with clients, play golf with clients. I've done the PA at the ballpark since 71, almost every year. So I'm still doing the PA at Spectrum Field. So I have a deal to work six weeks every year uh, for the Phillies. They want me to do it. I wanted to do it. Uh, Andy McPhail and Matt Klentak are very comfortable with me, evidently. I got to know Gabe a little bit in spring training. so, But I am... I don't know what's going on with them anymore. I just watch a game like you do. I don't know them as personalities anymore. Two final questions. Um, looking back on your career, one, any regrets? Any moments that you look back and you're like, wow, I should have did this, I should have done that? My only regret, I shouldn't say only, sure there's regrets. Um, would I have done something different, this, that, and the other thing? Well, you can always second-guess yourself. Uh, my, only, my biggest regret is my dad died so young and he didn't get to see what I did. Uh, my mom did, and my mom was my biggest fan. Um, my dad was a Christopher H. I'm a Christopher C., so I wasn't a junior. But I think he'd have been very proud of what I did. Uh, so, yeah, that's a regret. Do I have times when I wish I maybe had done something different on the air? I really didn't have embarrassing moments because, and I don't want to sit here and sound like Father Flanagan, I'm the greatest guy in the world or something, but I never, my sense of humor has never been like some people's sense of humor where the only sense of humor they have is to make fun of people. And you know exactly what I mean. And I don't have to name names, uh, whether it's in political life or whether it's on broadcasting or anything. That's their sense of humor. That was never my sense of humor. I grew up with... My mom saying, if you can't say something nice about somebody, don't say it. So I never grew up having to worry about making sarcastic remarks about people or racial comments, which started to bury some broadcasters in the 70, in the 80s and 90s and what they call politically incorrect. Now, I never had to worry about that. So that's one thing I teach kids or tell kids when they ask me about broadcasting is I always say, if you're questioning yourself right now, as you're about to say something, don't say it. Because the odds are you're going to offend somebody. Now, if you're in a medium right now where it doesn't, where you're on the air to offend people, totally different. My generation didn't grow up that way. So I really didn't have him back. Did I say, sure, did I say things that I wish I hadn't said? Or did I hear the tape where I said something and I may have accidentally used a cuss word or, uh, not, uh, you know, not a bad word or something? And think, oh, geez, I wish I hadn't said that or maybe gone off on a tirade or a tantrum about something. But I was emotional and I would say things once in a while. But, boy, I don't regret what I No, I don't regret it. Uh, I don't regret it at all. I'm very, very proud of what I did. I think I respected the business and respected the fans and went in there with a work ethic every day of trying to do the best I could because I loved every minute of it. And lastly, how much luck does luck play in in all this and, and how much skill, you know? We'll go back to just go back to what we talked about. You have to get your foot in the door. How do you get? That's what I always tell kids. When people ask me about the business, and I don't, it's so much different nowadays, but I always tell them if they, like, 
<laughs> Larry Shank said to me in 1971 when the PA uh, announcer got a little bit overserved the night before. He was a friend of the Carpenter family, and he didn't show up that morning. He said, did you ever do the PA bef- anywhere before? No, I'd never done I said, yeah, sure. I'd never done it. I always tell people, let them tell you you can't do something. Say, yeah, I can do that. Sure. And then if you can't do it, you'll know it or someone else will know it and you won't be able to do it. So that's the way I look at uh, that's the way I look at it. Luck involved. Yeah, I met Ed Harvey's daughter when I was 15 years old. He got me a job at WCAU Radio in the days that John Facenda was there and Tom Brookshire and Herb Clark and all the great people that were in, at WCAU and then WCAU Radio turning into talk radio. Did I Would I get my foot in the door if I hadn't met Ed Harvey's daughter and been a good baseball player? Would I be doing something else right now? Sure. Probably, if I hadn't met Andy Musser and he hadn't recommended me to Larry Shank. But the bottom line, Andrew, was every time I got an opportunity, I made the most of it. So I have to think that some of that was my own ability. But if you don't think you need luck or someone to help you open a door for you, I don't believe that. I, I believe we all need somebody helping us. Chris Wheeler of the Philadelphia Phillies. Thanks so much for listening to the show. Please subscribe and rate the show on Apple Podcasts and iTunes. Tweet me about the show at A-N-D underscore Porter. And thanks to Eric Turtle golden who helped produce the show. If you'd like to sponsor Wired This Way, please email me at A-N-D-R-E-W dot P-O-R-T-E-R at Entercom.com. That's Andrew.Porter at Entercom.com. Coming up next is the legendary voice of the Eagles, Merrill Reese. It's good! How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get Cox Internet powered by fiber with America's fastest download speeds. It's Internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply. Analysis by Ookla speed test intelligence data. Fixed median download speeds. USQ3 2023.